Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Games Podcast. I hope everybody is doing well, is keeping safe. And um, this week, this episode, now we weren't planning this uh, interview, but we were able to get this person on this podcast, and it's a person we've been trying to get for quite a while. Uh, we were finally able to to get him, and uh, I am talking, of course, about John Ingold, uh, CEO and founder of Inkle Studios. Uh, he, of course, is a developer of Heaven's Vault and Overboard, and his studio made 80 Days and Pendragon, and he has just written... Not one, but two books, two novels based on Heaven's Fault, which were released um, at the time this episode goes out yesterday, Thursday. And um, so we had a chance to speak to John Ingold. Now, we spoke to him about his company, about his games, mainly Heaven's Fault, the game. And we spoke a little bit about the book as well. My son Thomas also joined me, and we had a lot of questions about the book. Uh, unfortunately... Uh, I forgot to ask probably the most important question, which was where can people buy the books? But I will include a link in the show notes so uh, you can find it there. Uh, we will be reviewing those books as well. So if you're fans of Heaven's Vault, um, I think it's safe to say that uh, we could probably recommend this book. Yes, I haven't read the books yet, but I think we can uh, safely, hopefully recommend them anyway. But we will give a full in-depth review of the books uh, once we have read them. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, here is, first of all, a trailer for the game Heaven's Vault, which was released back in 2019, and it was myself and Thomas's game of the year of 2019. And after the trailer is our interview with John Ingle, so please enjoy. History is a science. It's the reconstruction of the past. I'm an archaeologist. I dig stuff up. Every ancient inscription I decipher is a piece of the puzzle. Every moon I sail to reveals a new path to explore. And every new discovery can change the story entirely. History belongs to everyone. It's how we know who we are. But will the story I put together be the truth? Uh, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Adventure Games podcast. Um, this week, uh, we have a very, very special guest, uh, someone who's wanted to have for a long time, and finally, the stars have aligned, we've been able to get him. Uh, we are speaking to John Ingold of Inkle Studios. Hello, John, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you very much. It's uh, very late on a Tuesday evening, so I'm <laughs> fairly, fairly tired, but otherwise, I am okay. <laughs> 
Yes, no, we, I think Thomas is now just joining us. He's been having some uh, technical issues, but he's finally here now, I think. But um, uh, no, we've been, uh, we're delighted to, to have you here, John. We're big, big fans of your, of your game. And this is a relatively cool November Tuesday evening. So, um, but we are here to talk about well, your company, Inco Studios. We're here to talk about your games, at least Heaven's Vault, and your books, which you have written for um, for Heaven's Vault, which uh, I'm looking forward to hearing, looking forward to reading. And Thomas, once he gets set up, I'm sure he will join us. He's here, but he is uh, uh, he is no no microphone, no camera, so. <laughs> okay, he's yeah, here I'm, in I'm spirit here. at the moment. Oh, you're hey, perfect. Hello, Thomas. Right hey, on John. time. Well, actually, you're a bit late, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I, I need to change. I need to replace my PC because this is getting ridiculous. It only took me 30 minutes to start up. <laughs> oh, well, I'm well, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, you're here now. You've you've made it, and John is here now as well. Uh, so, John, before we start talking about uh, Heaven's Vault, both the books and the game, I wanted to, if you could let us know, what, um, what are some of your favorite narrative games? Do you have any favorite ones in particular, either which you grew up playing or any recent ones in particular? Yeah, so I always find it really hard to pull favorite games out. I guess there's there's a couple of reasons for that, and it's partly because I have a terrible memory for things <laughs> anyway. They just sort of swirl around in my head in this sort of confusion in which I live. And it's partly that a lot of the games I play, I kind of deliberately play bad games which could have been good. Um, oh. <laughs> because that, I, that, that a lot of my creativity is driven by looking at things which didn't work and saying, oh, you were so close, but you didn't get there. Um, so often when people say, you know, what games do you actually like? I think, oh, that's a strange question. I don't think about that very often. Um, but luckily I have a pat answer because I've been asked this before. So my favorite narrative game is uh, The Last Express. Oh, uh, wow. The Jordan Lencher train game, the rotoscoped train game from the late 90s, from I think 99. I didn't actually play it when I was a kid. I did play adventure games when I was a kid, but I didn't play that one. I didn't even notice it. Um, in fact, I think I played it in like 2011 or something like that, or 20, 2009 when they did an iPad port of it. And it's a really strange game if you don't know it. Like it, it's done in this, I guess it's a bit like Mist. You kind of move from panel to panel in a 3D world, but you're not in 3D. Only everything is hand drawn. All the animation is rotoscoped from real actors. Um, and you move around this train where the other characters move around in real time as well. And it's sort of simulated and it's sort of not simulated. Um, and it's very kind of low key compared to a lot of adventure games and that it doesn't really present you with any clear challenges or, or there isn't that much clear direction either for what to do, but you just do things. And after a while you discover that actually there are things you really need to do, otherwise you're gonna die and then you die and then you reset, which isn't a great design choice, but. Mm. Um, in amongst all of this, there is, it's just brilliantly written. It's one of the very, really very few games, which is just stunningly well-written. Like the, the dialogue, the prose, the characterizations are done with such delicacy and intelligence that you just don't see that in, in almost any games at all. Even games that we like are generally, the writing is good. It's sometimes strong, but it's rarely wonderful. And um, yeah, The Last Express is a masterpiece. And it's a masterpiece that clearly only just exists by the skin of its teeth. It must have been almost impossible to make at the time. 
Um, and so that kind of brings together my two loves, really, in that it's brilliantly written. And it's also a game that almost gets it right, but slightly gets it wrong. <laughs> so I get to enjoy it. <laughs> I get to enjoy it both as a good game and as a bad game at the same time, which works brilliantly for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm always going back to that one, actually. And, and that sense of that sense of what what was what are the moments in this that work so well and how can you how can you bring those out and make them broader and more significant and more like a more fundamental part of whatever the game you're making is and the last express was a huge inspiration for heaven's fault actually um but it, it's it's my favorite game by a by a country mile actually um otherwise narrative games i played a lot of infocom style games and parser games when i was growing up because we had a really rubbish computer when i was a kid oh you loved the and challenge so, <laughs> <laughs> well I, I just literally i didn't have a choice um but yeah we were stuck on many of them for years and years and then somebody invented the internet purely so that we could get hints for infocom games and then we used the internet <laughs> to get hints and we got a bit further um but there was a there was a community of people writing text adventures um around the year 2000 and I was in that community writing games with other hobbyist writers. And I think actually some of my favorite narrative games are games written by those people in that community. Um, Cause that really was just this incredibly inventive time full of people really just saying, well, okay, what can games be and what can interactivity be? And I, I'm still kind of running on the fumes of that, I think now. Um, but no one's ever heard of any of those games, unless you were there, in which case you know them all already. So it's kind of hard to list them, really. Right. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I haven't played The Last Express, but I, I do know I take quite a bit oh, about it's it. So that it's good. I, I it's think so I saw videos. Have you played it, Thomas? Yes. Yeah, I've, I've played it, but I wasn't aware that it was all in real time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's quite a thing to. Yeah. So I kind of um, messed it up all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, it's impossible not to mess it up because you do have to be psychic to know what to do. Or, or, well, actually, it's kind of almost a time loop, really, in that you die and you reset and you go again. You, you keep doing that until you get it right. But um, it just has this. When it works, it's so graceful. Like there's a there's a point in the middle where all the passengers accumulate in this guy's car. Um, to listen to a violin concert and you can sit in the car and listen to a full violin concert that's thoroughly animated and look around the room at the reactions of the other characters who are also listening to this violin concert and like two of them are in love but they're secretly in love and they're kind of looking at each other and sharing this moment and you can watch them share this moment during a violin concert while the violin is playing and from the point of view of winning the game it's the wrong thing to do you you must not be in that room if you want to win the game because actually it's a time when all the characters are somewhere else so you can go and raid their cabins for things that you need but nonetheless it's there and it's built with beauty and it the people in that room in that train car listening to that concert are for a short while real people they're not just sprites in a computer game and no computer game ever manages that ever mm. Um, they're always robots sitting on sofas waiting for you to press the X button, but they aren't in The Last Express. And it's it's magic. It's absolutely magic. And to, to play it, you really have to get past the UI, which is extremely difficult to navigate. And like, I think when I first played it, I managed to get lost within the first location, which is a single room train <laughs> compartment because I couldn't work oh, out that, how many doors it had. That would be me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know it's like the camera is rotating round but it's not going in 90 degree increments so i i couldn't work out how many sides the room had for a long time um 
but no it's just yeah there's so there's so much love and humanity in it and games really struggle with any love and humanity that <laughs> Oh, it's just yeah, it's it's amazing. It really is. Well, well, well one game that I think I, said I haven't played, but one thing that I think could be similar, which you said the characters are robots, but not in this game, is Overboard, which you made. Mm. <laughs> that seems I mean seems to be similar in a way that characters move around and you um you have to try and get away with murder. And I, I failed a lot, but a good thing was with the game is it was never frustrating. <laughs> it was always kind of like yeah. okay, well, this is what the story's supposed to be, but I'll try again and. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Overboard is absolutely like us sitting down and saying, if we were to make The Last Express really quickly <laughs> and really well in a way that was super fun to play, what would we do? <laughs> but like, it's definitely, you know, hugely inspired by that game. There's no question about it. Well, well I think you succeeded in Overboard because I played it multiple times, still haven't gotten away with murder, but I still haven't been frustrated. I'm still like, oh, well, the best could have try again, but, you know, that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> um, it's really fun. Some people write to us and say, it's just, I find this game too easy. Like on my second game, I got away with murder. And I'm really? like, okay, oh, that's not me. Uh, I don't really, I don't really want you to talk to me anymore. You sound like a bad person. <laughs> I mean, I still haven't but killed every, is... everyone, but uh, I might try that next mm, time I play. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's quite a fun ending. And I hope you enjoy it if you get there. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure I will. Um, but yeah, we're here to talk about Heaven's Fault. But before we talk about Heaven's Fault, um, wanted to, to ask about, so you created the studio Inkle, and you also, I believe you have, um, you created, uh, is it a, the writing device um, uh, that other people now use as well? So first of all, what, yeah. what, what, what oh God, what's, what's the name of that again? It's not Inkle. It's ink. I, ink, it, yes. It, no, Ink, yeah. We're Inkle and we write in ink and we yep. use Inky as an editor to write it. It's very <laughs> confusing and we we probably shouldn't have done it, but it was just too convenient at the time. Well, I know that other people uh, use it, such as, you know, Steve Ince, when he wrote his book as well, he recommended ink as well. And I checked it out myself. Oh, right. I'm someone who is, you know, as not technically proficient at all or I've never made a game. I thought, oh, this is something I could use. Um, Great. Well, that's good. I mean, I think one of the driving things behind Ink was, I mean, I'd used a lot of different languages and a lot of different uh, interactive fiction writing systems, and a lot of them are massively over-engineered. They're constantly giving you features and programming um, power and structures and all mm. these things, which are absolutely... Like I, I, I do code and I can code and I can cope with all of these things, but they get in the way of my writer brain. My writer brain wants Microsoft Word or something as <laughs> close to Microsoft Word as possible. There's just words on a page that I can move around quickly um, and I can skim read. And so Ink tries to do that. And the, the clever bit is it is as powerful as a programming language, but the programming language is the complicated bit added on top of the writing rather than the writing being the thing that's added on top of the programming language. So it, it turns that paradigm upside down. And that's it's something that we tried when we started the company. And honestly, as an experiment, it's just been paying out in spades. Every game we've made has been written in ink and we've been going for 10 years. Wow. We've made like 16 things in it and a, you know, a ton of prototypes as well. And it just keeps on giving. I keep discovering new things I can do in ink. I, I bloody love it. <laughs> yeah, because the games all seem to be quite different. I mean, Heaven's Vault and Overboard seem to be very different. And 80 Days, from what I've seen as well, seems different still. And yet it's all created yeah. using the same program. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ink, Ink plugs into Unity. And obviously, Unity is a game engine. You can write whatever the heck you like in Unity. 
um, and ink is just driving the text content within it. So, you know, it's not like ink creates Heaven's Vault. It doesn't. A lot of, a lot of game coding creates Heaven's mm. Vault. But the, the ability for the story itself to be responsive and adapted and actually just well-written and well-edited, that all comes from it having ink at its core. Because um, part of what we do is we separate off the writing process and the coding process, because that's actually what my brain needs if I'm going to write well. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, besides using Inkle to create the games, what are the, the core uh, the core features of um, yeah of an of an Inkle game. What makes an Inkle game an Inkle game? That's a good question. Um, I mean, we're quite restless designers. In that, every time we make a game, we then immediately try to make something different rather than doing the sequel. So, you know, our most popular game, um, or, or rather, the the first game we had that really kind of broke out and got noticed was Eighty Days. And so we immediately didn't make a sequel. We didn't make another game like 80 Days. We then made Heaven's Vault, which is a 3D adventure and it's completely different. But I've kind of, uh, we just turned 10 about, oh, I think it was last week. And I was reflecting on the work that we've done at the company over the time. And thinking about you know, what, what, what are the elements of an Inkle game? And I think it boils down to really our games are surprisingly complicated and well-written responsive text married with slick and effective graphic design and UI design and stylish 2D art. Those feel to me like the pillars of an Inkle game. And Heaven's Vault is a 3D game, but it still has stylish 2D art at its core with all the kind of character animations, which are effectively rotoscoped in a lot of express style um, and great audio. We really like audio, like we love our soundtracks. We love our kind of ambient audio effects. And those to me feel like the, the pillars of it. And um, what's interesting to me is that basically maps to the people that are on the team. Like I do the text, Joe does the graphic design and the UI design. Um, Anastasia does the, the 2D art and illustration. She's our kind of illustrator. And then we have a particular composer we normally work with and we all do a bit of sound design as well for the audio escape. Um, and I think within that framework, we can make anything like given enough time and enough money and enough sort of um, ideas, we could make anything. But it's always going to have that narrative core and that kind of stylish, stylish 2D illustrative kind of magazine style presentation and layout. For some reason, that's what we've settled on. It's just a thing that we really like. Um, yeah. Well, so far, it seems to be working anyway. <laughs> it's a... We're happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, now you've mentioned, you know, Heaven's Vault is a 3D game, but yeah, it looks kind of like 2D-ish. It kind of looks like, um, you know, with uh, characters walking around, kind of like from a kind of like an animation or, um, or a magazine or, you know, or a comic as well. It looks beautiful and mm. the worlds as well. Um, I suppose the first question is for anyone who still hasn't uh, played it. Um, I suppose if what what is uh, Heaven's Vault about then? Because I know my, myself and Thomas have played it. It was our game of the year, twenty nineteen. But um, and I don't say this to everybody. Oh, it's, it's it's one of the best games I've ever played, and I'm not Thank saying you, that because no, I've 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 said that from the moment I've played he it. Has. So I can I can I yeah. take every opportunity to. Uh, to promote the game because I absolutely adore this game. I gave it uh, as a gift to several friends of mine so they could play it as well. And everybody is just lyrical about it. They're just absolutely blown away by it. And so so was I. So I 
Uh, I'm a I'm fanboying a bit here, John, <laughs> so excuse me for that. <laughs> I, su I suppose uh, uh, yeah. the, the question is then for any, anybody else, uh, what, what is the setup of this game? Uh, so uh, Heaven's Vault is a... I don't know, I'm too close to it. Heaven's Vault is a <laughs> science fiction archaeological adventure, um, but in which you play Elia Alazra, who is a a historian of the nebula where she lives, who is sent to look for a missing roboticist with her sidekick, who is a robot, um, and stumbles upon a chain of discoveries that, that leads further and further back into the forgotten history of the place where she lives and then reveals the ages of history that have been lost over time and how they were lost and how things have changed. Um, right the way back to the very beginning of the nebula and the kind of the central mystery of what is this place and where does it come from? And that's that's what the game is, except that's never what people actually say about it. What people say is it's the game where you um, learn and translate a, an ancient hieroglyphic language because you do do that. That is true. Um, <laughs> we created a, a, a language. We created a language, a symbolic language for the game. And very slowly as you play it, including across multiple runs, because you can play a new game plus, which extends the language game based on what you learned last time. Um, you can learn and develop your understanding of this language. And uh, the game has a vocabulary of about 30,000 words, something like that. Wow. And in a first playthrough, you might learn, you might learn 60 in your first playthrough. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of content <laughs> to keep you going. Um, and that was, that was a really interesting mechanic to develop because it was, it, it really was impossible for quite some time and we had no idea if we were ever going to be able to do it and then one day we made a prototype that just worked and we pretty much didn't change anything from that moment on and that one particular design um has been kind of really admired i think by almost everyone who's played the game there are some people who complain about it and fair enough there always will be but most people have got have really got the sense that they do feel they're learning this language and it's not an impossible task but it's quite a pleasurable task and a Moorish task because um, learning a real language is hard, right? I've tried Duolingo, it's hard. Um, <laughs> and so we couldn't quite do that. So we had to, we had to get away from, from making it into a school game of some weird learn this language that's not real. Um, I think you can do Klingon on Duolingo now, actually. Which really? Is, it's, oh, it's, wow. You have to get away from that. Yeah, I mean, it's completely pointless, though, obviously. Because <laughs> um, if it's that hard to learn a language, you might as well learn Mandarin or whatever. But um, but yeah, so that was quite a lot of design work. And, and in some ways, that's the heart and soul of the game is this language. But to me, that isn't the heart and soul of the game. To me, the, the heart and soul of it really is this, is the place where the game is set, this nebula, which is a really quite unusual um, setting. I, I, hopefully it's nothing quite like anyone's seen before in a science fiction game and it's a little bit historical and it's a little bit fantastical and it's a little bit science fiction but it's robustly logical and everything in it works and makes sense and is there for a reason and there's no there's none of that nonsense that you often get in science fiction games um, sorry science fiction stories where you know at the end people feel they have to go crazy and they go crazy and then something bizarre happens and it ruins the logic of the world um i remember when we were drafting out heaven's vault originally back in 2015 i think um i think it was interstellar came out anyway the chris nolan film interstellar mm -hmm. which has this really robustly thought out relativistic hard sci-fi universe and these people 
you know, exploring these planets where time dilation really matters and it's incredibly compelling. And then at the end, it decides that it really has to push the envelope a bit more. So somebody goes and I don't know, sits in the middle of a black hole and talks to an alien through a bookcase or something. And it's just like some other film has been stuck onto the last act because they didn't know where to go. And it's such a shame because um, it kind of gives up on its own logic. I remember really noticing that when I was watching that film and thinking, oh, this is the one thing I really want to make sure that we can do is make a sci-fi world that is strong enough that it can it can have a great ending without breaking its own rules. And I got really obsessed about that. And I think so for me, the, the amount of logic behind the world of the nebula is what makes it feel so real to me. And so that ma makes it really the heart of the game for me. But there is also this language that everybody else likes. <laughs> Was that a good answer? It's not exactly an elevator pitch at this point. No, but you, you know, you mentioned there are, you know, many things that I think myself and Thomas really liked about it. You mentioned the languages and the world as well. Another thing that I really liked is you mentioned you played an archaeologist. Now, I've never I'm not an archaeologist, but it actually feels like you are an archaeologist, because as much as I love, you know, Indiana Jones and Lara Croft, um, they feel more like action heroes. They don't seem to do much archaeology. Mm. Oh, they're, they're grave robbers. They're not archaeologists. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I love those absolutely. characters. But uh, Alia, she seems like an actual archaeologist. She's following leads and she's discovering ruins. And OK, we don't see her with, um, you know, with uh, Pickle or whatever, but it, it feels like she's an archaeologist. So did you speak to any archaeologists or did you do any research or, or what did you do to try to make Claire <laughs> feel like an archaeologist? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I did do some research. Yes, um, oh, no, it shows. Sorry. it's, it's so, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny when we started the game. I had been watching Stargate a lot um, mm. with my then newborn, and thinking, oh yeah, space archaeology. No one's done space archaeology. Let's do space archaeology. And we sort of started off on this project. And at some point, Joe, um, my co-founder Joe Humphrey, said, you know, so what's the player actually going to do in this game? And I was like, I don't know, you know, pressure pads, spike traps, like Tomb Raider stuff. And he was like, oh, yeah, really? And I was like, well, maybe. I don't. I hadn't really thought about it. And then that question got kind of got stuck in my head of like, well, what is the player going to do? Like, obviously, archaeology is cool. That's unquestionable. Everybody knows archaeology is cool, right? It's definitely <laughs> cool. But what is it that archaeologists actually do that is cool? Why do we think they're cool? Like, what do they do? And I kind of thought about it and I thought, well, they dig, you know, very small holes quite slowly. That's that's not you know, that's not massively cool. And they glue pots back together. That's definitely not cool. Um, and uh, if you go into like the 1930s golden age archaeology that's in Agatha Christie and that Indiana Jones is referencing, they nick a load of stuff and then they take it away to another country. And but they give some of it to whichever rich a financier gave them the money for their expedition. That's definitely not cool. Um, mm. And that's quite significantly not cool. And I was actually really quite stuck on this. And then I so I remember one day in a coffee shop really worrying that we were halfway into this project that was never going to be any good. I Googled interesting archaeologists, which is just <laughs> the depths to which I had sunk. And I stumbled upon the work of this lady called Dr. Monica Hanna. I think she's a professor now, who is an Egyptian Egyptologist who was writing about the looting of artifacts from Egyptian museums by Egyptian people in the wake of the Arab Spring. And the logic she was arguing was that there were people thinking, well, the government owns these artifacts. I don't like the government, so I'm going to steal the artifacts for myself. 
Um, and she'd like met actual robbers and looters and fought them off in museums and stuff, which is kind of pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. It's really like sort of Indiana Jones-ish, but actually kind of real life um, mm. and, and that sort of thing. And that idea of the debate of who gets to own the history of Egypt. Is it the Egyptian government or is it the Egyptian people or is it the British Museum and England for some random reason? Like, <laughs> because ancient Egypt is definitely exciting and valuable and important. It's a part of the human story, but who gets to own that? Because it is financially significant as well as politically significant. Um, it really matters. Like when an archeologist digs up an ancient artifact, who the archaeologist gives that artifact to is really important and it's happening right now so although archaeology is about the study of the past and working out what happened in history it's not like it doesn't happen in the present there are archaeologists doing meaningful exciting and dangerous work right now that's politically relevant right now and that really lit a fire underneath me and that kind of got me got me understanding i remember i came back to the office and i was like okay look what the player is going to do is they're going to find things they're going to theorize about what the heck those things are they're going to decide what they're going to do about the information they've learned and in doing so they're going to overturn all of the assumptions that they start the game with about the world where they live um and that felt to me like something that could be that could drive a narrative throughout a whole experience in a really profound way without losing any of the character interactions that we like and i think it did and i'm really proud of how it how it played out in the game um and it's you know it as a theme it's beautifully relevant as well right like um obviously we're in we're in the uk and uh there's um the powerful the powerful wrecking ball of brexit was just beginning to wind <laughs> up um for its swing uh, as we were making heaven's vault it's finally smashed us now but um at the time it was just kind of gearing itself up and it that whole debacle is powered by the fact that in Britain we have very little understanding of our own history we don't teach the history of the empire to school children in Britain despite the fact that we believe that Britain is an empire we, we all believe that implicitly still so that idea of what is the history of Britain what does it mean to be British where do we stand in the world do other countries actually like us or are they really quite resentful of what we did to them nearly a hundred years ago you know less than a hundred years ago in some cases and we don't understand any of that and in the context of not understanding any of that we vote to go it alone and of course everybody no longer is interested in helping us because that's completely obvious um, and all of that business of the assumptions that we're born into, that Britain is a good, intelligent, internationalist country, are actually, they're, they're kind of all wrong. Um, and the more history you learn, the more you realise that they're all wrong. And, you know, Aaliyah's doing a similar thing in the nebula with the, hist with the invented history there. But it felt to me like that was a really meaningful thing to be talking about, like, to say to people as they play this game look it's you know when you start with an assumption about the world that you're in and you find a piece of evidence that contradicts that assumption you have to stop and think about it you can't just pretend you already know the answer um That's and so really uh, hard for people <laughs> yeah no it really is it really is because it's deeply uncomfortable and no one wants to be the bad guy and no one wants to be ignorant like you know no um yeah, you know, no, no one wants to discover that they may have made a mistake and not realize they made a mistake. But on the other hand, if we're not doing that, we're not really living. We're not really alive if we're not actually looking at what we're doing. So that kind of really fired me up. Um, 
and the the other thing is my which I don't talk about very much because I hate to go back to it but my dad is an anthropologist and growing up as a kid in a family with an anthropologist I met a lot of anthropologists and I met by extension a lot of archaeologists as well because they often work together so I've met hundreds of archaeologists wow <laughs> <laughs> like and mostly I kind of ignored them because when you're a kid it's like, oh that's my dad's colleague I'm not interested mm. um <laughs> but you kind of get a sense of how they speak and how they think and what they what they consider important and what they don't consider important and this kind of anthropological perspective where where you you don't you look at culture as a thing that people are doing rather than some kind of absolute truth and and that sort of stuff so I think all of that really fed in it's been really nice for me though because I did feel on shaky ground because I'm not an archaeologist that the game has been loved generally by archaeologists which I was going to ask you that yeah did did any archaeologists play this game and what did they think (laughs) yeah yeah they have no they have um we 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 frequently get played by archaeologists actually I've done a on the back of the game, I did a seminar at Cambridge University to a group of archaeologists about wow. the representation <laughs> of archaeology in Heaven's Vault, which was, you know, I mean, wow. I've, I've suffered from imposter syndrome before, but that was like <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, no, archaeologists genuinely think that it, it does actually tackle some of the relevant issues of their craft. And I think also they're just really glad not to see spike traps and pressure pits and yeah. you know, all of those things, because actually archaeologists never have to deal with any of that <laughs> stuff at all. It's all completely made up. So, yeah, well, so, yeah, I, I mean, quite... it must be great that archaeologists, you know, tell you, yeah, it feels like, you know, you play as an archaeologist. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really, really, really good. Actually, it's really reassuring. And I was really worried about it. But there is this slight part of me that when they say that they say, Oh, you know, you really captured the archaeology. I go, Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, can you tell me exactly what it is I captured? <laughs> like, can you tell me what it is? Because <laughs> I don't know which bit of this game you're talking about. Um, but I think the interesting thing is they're often not talking about the language stuff, actually, which is what I think a lot of people might assume that they're talking about. It's much more about the way that Aaliyah will find evidence, will form a theory, extrapolate on that theory. And then when she finds other evidence in the world, when you find other artifacts or inscriptions, she'll test her theories against whatever she's found and adapt and update them um, based on that. Because she's doing science the whole time. She's doing this process of, well, this is the best explanation I've got right now, but it can change when I find something new. Um, and I think that that was you know, really hard to write actually, because it's extremely branchy. Mm. Um, because you can form all sorts of different theories and you can be totally wrong about things. Um, but I, th- I think that's the thing that they're really responding to because archaeologists in games don't do that, right? Or, or in stories, generally. Archaeologists in stories walk into a room and go, ah, yes, I know this one. It's a 15th century <laughs> blah, blah, blah that was built by such and such a person when he was feeling ill because he'd lost his dog. You know, Indiana Jones never goes, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> he just never says that. Um and, you know, when <laughs> when he doesn't know what it is, it's always just like the actual work of actual God, isn't it, in Indiana Jones? Um, or aliens, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Speaking of, of the way that science fiction films like try to do something exciting and break their own logic, like Indiana <laughs> Jones is entirely about a crusader. He's a crusader on a crusade for the Christian God. That's what all the films are about. And then the fourth one was like, and aliens, but you can't <laughs> really have reason. God and aliens. They're very different. Anyway, 
for some reason. But I hear the fifth but, one's going to have time travel. Yeah, I've read that as well, but mm, we shall see. Yeah. So, uh, would, would that be in Heaven's Vault too? Now I wonder. <laughs> Aliens and time travel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you actually, yeah, gave me... well, you sorry, know, go ahead. No, I was going to say one of our rules when we started Heaven's Vault was no aliens. <laughs> like it would have been very easy to have aliens, but we we, we had a rule of that, and um, I think it was the right decision. Definitely. Well, I think yeah, so too. Yeah. Well, you, you lead me to the um, to my next um, question as well that you you mentioned as well that uh, you can get it wrong, and that's one of the things that I really liked about this game because when we were translating, we're not sure if uh, we are correct which is very rare for games and for an adventure game in particular we're always told no the solution has to be exactly like this or if we're in a location we have to find all of the objects before we can leave but in heaven's vault Mm. we can leave whenever we want and if we don't find everything we don't have to go back which and the game never punishes you so if you get with a translation if that's what you think it is that's what you think it is um so what Mm. was that um I, I, again, I guess my question is, uh, what was was that how you wanted to design it from the beginning or did that come about organically? That actually, that was something we really wanted from the beginning. Like it was a, it was a convergence of a bunch of, uh, of forces. Like we knew that one of the problems with adventure games, look, I love adventure games, but we mm-hmm. can admit that as a medium, they are often very flawed. <laughs> and one of the problems that I saw in the adventure games that I played was that moment when, you've done an, you've done a location but you can't seem to leave or you can't make mm-hmm. progress and you don't know why and what you do is you go back to every single location in the game and you farm every single pixel for the thing that you missed because it's very easy to miss something if you weren't forced to pick it up if you are fixed forced to pick it up though the game ends up very linear um, and we knew that we wanted a game in which you never needed to backtrack ever in which the game would just cope Um, And that was one of our kind of pillars was the story should always just cope with whatever you're doing. And, you know, we're not magic. We can't make a game which works if you stand in one place doing nothing. And we can't make a game where, you know, you can enter a dig site, find and do nothing and then immediately leave again and have the game cope. Because if you've done nothing, you've done nothing. But what we try to do is make it so that any reasonable player who's not trying to break the system can have any discoveries that they have or miss anything they have and have the game carry on and hopefully not even notice that they've missed things because missing things doesn't feel great. So you kind of don't want to point out that people got six out of the seven things that they had to find. (laughs) They got what they got and then they move on from that. And then with the translation, it was really important to us that we didn't give you a tick or a cross because if we did, it's just a quiz and it's a quiz where you didn't know the answers to start with. So that's the worst kind of quiz right if somebody mm. if you walk into a classroom and somebody says pop quiz we're doing a spanish test and you don't speak spanish there is no joy in that <laughs> at all um so that idea of being able to get things wrong but then be able to do better that's what learning is and we wanted to capture that sense of learning and i think that's why it works that's the whole reason why it works is that you start off making a blind guess and then you make a better guess so you're constantly getting better and kind of honing towards something true but uh, yeah we were really keen on on the ambiguity there and it was really important to me for like the archaeological point as well i wanted people to be able to get to the end of the game with actual contradictions on the game's timeline and like questions they couldn't answer and you know um i wanted i wanted it to have holes and 
for people for your version of history to be different than someone else's version of history because that's what archaeology is actually like right they don't nobody nobody comes along and tells an archaeologist yep you got me you got it right um they have to just make do with with what the deductions they've made and i think that's what makes the world feel real i mean it frustrates the hell out of completionists but i also like frustrating <laughs> the hell out of completionists so that's fine too <laughs> well, in, in, a, in a way you uh well the game doesn't punish you but it all it, it instead it, it's it rather not reward you for get if you get it wrong um well i, I think remember- to be honest if if you do get it right it doesn't necessarily reward you either like the game still just keeps going like it's yeah. not like you ever get a ding but um no, but I, I mean like um near the end there is this mm. very um very long sentence that you find in one in a ruin um once you uh yeah get near the the end game yeah i know what you mean yeah and i i distinctly remember i wasn't able to translate half of that because i made mistakes mm. um in, but it didn't stop me from finishing the game, I, not at all. But mm. it did. I, I did have this feeling for, oh, damn it! I need to do better next time, so I know what this is because I really, I really wanted to know what it said. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I made some mistakes, so I, I didn't get rewarded in that way. I didn't get punished, but I didn't get rewarded by getting the full uh, lore there either. That, well, here's the thing. I, here's yeah. the thing, though. Like, if you had got every translation right throughout the whole game, there's still no guarantee that you would have been able to translate that sentence at the end, because it just depends on what words you encounter and what you happen to learn and what you happen not to learn. Like, the game is not. The game makes sure that every translation you encounter is the is the most fun version of whatever would be written on that object that you could find. Um, and by that, I mean, it's not so completely incomprehensible that you can't do anything. And it's not so completely trivial that you already know how to read it because you've read 30 of these already. Like it always tries to keep pushing you forwards, but that's within the context of, of what you're actually reading. So that long inscription towards the end, there are different versions of that you can find and it will do its best to find the right one for you at that moment. Right. But very few people are going to be able to read that on their first playthrough unless they're i mean unless they're reading the language for themselves anyway because one thing you can do is just look at the symbols and the words outside of the dictionary that the game gives you and start to make deductions based on what you know and kind of approximate an understanding of what it means and maybe you can't tell Aaliyah that but you can still understand it yourself or maybe you can't understand it at all but it's kind of from my point of view it doesn't matter like it's the thing in the world. Why Why should you be able to read everything that's written in this world? That doesn't make any sense either. Like, if the world is real, they weren't writing it for the benefit of Aaliyah or Lazarus, who comes along mm. 2,000, 4,000 years later. And that's that, to me, is part of the texture of it. It's part of the tone of the thing. Um, so, you know, people have definitely read that long inscription, but but it's almost like on a canonical playthrough of the game, she should find an inscription towards the end that she has absolutely no idea what it says because that's part of the story in a way. Um, so I don't think it's a punishment. I think it's it's just not it's not what you would expect a game to do. But mm, that's right. I, I I don't feel responsible for the fact <laughs> that games are often pandering to their audiences or you know. Oh, no, I, I, I didn't, it, it you know didn't what I mean? Like it's like that's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think you make a great point, you know, it's why, why should she know how to, uh, to, you know, to be able to translate that? It wasn't done for her. So just be kind of realistic. Um, mm-hmm. now I, I don't know, Thomas, I mean, if, players, sorry, go ahead. 
No, well, players sometimes say, you know, that, that it's really frustrating, but I do think it's a really important thing to notice that, firstly, frustration is not intrinsically bad. Um, and secondly, all games are frustrating. Otherwise, they wouldn't be fun. Um, <laughs> every game is a balance between power and frustration. It has to be, because if you were just able to do everything in a game, the game is pointless. There's um, no challenge. It's not... It, yeah, right. Exactly. That's what mm. challenge is. It's, it's yeah. something not that you want to do that you can't quite do. That's that is frustration. That's what frustration is. So, um, you know, we're always skirting that line between those two things and finding the tension between those two things, because that's our job, actually. Well, you also now uh, have written two books. Uh, don't have to tell me if you have any more questions about the, about the game itself before we talk about the books. Um, well, one of the highlights of the game uh, for me is the sense of wonder and exploration. Mm, um, yes, definitely. I, it's, it's just, you know, you never, you never know what's around the next corner. And when you do see what's around the next corner, I, I would, was getting like this, whoa, feeling like I was not expecting this and it looks amazing. And I can't wait to find out what is going on at this location. Um, and, um, what was the inspiration for all this? Because in story-wise, it doesn't make sense at first, but once you've played it, like everything you see, uh, but once you've played it completely through, it, it all makes total sense, as you say, it, it, uh, within the world, it all makes total sense. So w um, what was the, the main inspiration for the for this, this story and these locations? Well, that, firstly, that's, that's really, it, it's really great to hear that because that is, a, as a designer, you don't get to explain Experience that even slightly like there is no surprise around the corner in any location ever <laughs> because you know what's there um but i remember when we were designing the locations obviously we're a small studio we couldn't afford to make hundreds and hundreds of locations so we had to make each one count um so with every location i wanted to make sure i was expressing a different period of the nebula's history and a different aspect of um, of the culture of the nebula at that time. We had this timeline of all the things that had happened in this 4,000 year history of the nebula. We worked that out in advance. And so I had that on the wall and I knew that I needed to communicate all of that to the player, ideally. You know, like they would get things wrong and have ambiguities, but it needed to be in there somewhere. I, it was no good me saying, oh, here's a hundred year period in which they all learn to play the harp. If you never visit anywhere with any harps, people are never, has to be a clue for everything you want people to discover. Um, so the idea was to try and find um, a way of, of, with the limited locations that we had, of getting enough landmarks in that timeline that people could plot the course of the history of the nebula through it. And that almost always relates to people and what people are doing. So, you know, you, you'll have a location in which um, it might look like a crumbling ruin, but that's not what's important about it. What's important about it is what did people do here when it wasn't a crumbling ruin? And then that activity that they did is the interesting thing. And then you can't make another location which is the same. If you've made one location, which is a, a library, say, you can't make another library um, because then you're just describing the same thing again. So that diversity of, of the things that people did in and the diversity of the time periods in which they did them and we thought about things like building materials our, our lead artist laura dillaway did a an architectural history of the nebula like including what what materials they used and what structural features did they have and what are the design of their arches and their doorways and how did that evolve over time and then applied that to all of our settings um 
And then lastly, once we had the kind of overview of what these places were, it was just about trying to, to maximize the impact of each one. So um, we have the, the, there are these ancient gods in the nebula, which were designed by our, our 2D illustrator. And I love them. They're really iconic. I think they look incredible. They, you know, they're, they're clearly god statues, but they, they don't look like any god statues you've seen before. And they're kind of unique. And I really like those. So we tended to put one of them around the corner because it's always just a joy to walk around the corner and see one of these great big gods. Um, and things like that. Um, but a lot of it was, yeah, it was really just about um, often stopping, taking a step back and saying, what have we, what could we do that we've not done yet? Like, have we done a location in which you unexpectedly meet another person? Or have we done a location in which something sort of goes disastrously wrong? Or have we met a location which is made out of materials that no other location has been made of before? So you go, whoa, I, I've gotten used to the palette of this game, but this is completely different. Um, and it was really fun, actually. It was really fun to do that and to try and make sure that we've pushed every environment to, to have its own story to tell, but its own place within the kind of larger framework uh, of the game. But I mean, the short answer is we thought about this stuff so much. <laughs> like, we yeah, thought about it really. That's <laughs> I really wanted to get away with not having to think about it very hard, but it turned out that that was actually harder. So we thought about it instead. <laughs> I don't think you can create a game like this without thinking very hard about stuff like that. Is 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 there any plans for uh, like a, a, a making of book where you get where you have all this information combined, or is that no, that's is that really interesting? Gonna... Like at the time, I I really felt like I could easily have written a, a game design book about it because there were so many things that we thought about and we we kind of considered and designed. You know, the way the language works, the way the dialogue system works, the way the branching narrative system works, the way that the story keeps going regardless of what mistakes you make. These things are all things we basically had to design from scratch because there aren't very many games that do any of them to offer us reference points. Um, but the funny thing is that when the game came out, like the people who played it loved it, but it never broke outside of the indie bubble. It didn't become a game that people knew oh, unless they had already heard of Inkle. <laughs> yeah, it's so frustrating. And mm, like yeah. you know, very few games do, and it's okay, mm. and that's fine. That's that's par for the course. But you know, you come away from it a year later and you're like, well, we put a lot of effort into this and I don't know if I want to put in even more effort to this thing for this same group of people because you, you get a bit burned out about it. So I think after the project finished, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to just dig into the kind of making of, of it, even though I do think that there was an enormous amount of interesting stuff there. And to be fair, with a bit more perspective, I think actually there's probably a lot of interesting design behind every game you play, actually, because people work so hard that um, we should just all talk to each other about what we do more. Um, but anyway, now a couple of years later, the burnout is gone. <laughs> I love back. my game again. It's okay. <laughs> I'm back. Um, so I did write a book, but it wasn't a design book. It was a fiction book, and I had a lot of fun doing it. So, <laughs> yes. Speaking of books, you've um, it was a great surprise for um, I think for myself, and I think I can speak for Thomas as well when we saw oh, on Twitter <laughs> that you said that uh, oh, I'm about to release uh, not one but two books, two novelizations of Heaven's Vault, and we were like, what? Wow. Um, so now. So, I guess my question is because um, when you're adapting a game into a book, they're, I guess they're quite different because Heaven's Vault is so visual. And then obviously being a book is mm -hmm. descriptive and then Heaven's Vault 
I don't know if you call it non-linear, but you mentioned that there's branching narratives and the player has more control, whereas now in the book, the people are more passive that you get to tell the story the way you get to tell it. Uh, was there, were there any challenges to writing a book uh, based on the game or any benefits, anything that you enjoyed more about writing the book over the game at all? Yeah, well, it was a heck of an experience, as you can imagine. Um, mm. Like, I think when I started it, I was it was in the middle of the winter lockdown and um, we'd just shipped Pendragon and I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I was thinking, oh, I just, I'm just sick of games. I want to do something completely different for a while. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I could do some normal writing. And um, the world of Heaven's Vault hasn't really left me since since we shipped the game, like I, I can still hear the characters' voices in my head. I can still see the world, obviously, that we developed. I still understand the history of it that we that we thought through. So I had that had that to hand, and I thought, oh well, I'll, I'll just write a little bit of this of this world just just for fun, really, to see how it comes out. And what I found was was it was a really enjoyable um, experiment because on the one hand, I had these characters which I knew really well, but their conversations can go in so many different directions at once in the game. That's part of its appeal when you're playing it. And so the question becomes, what's the most exciting? What's the most dramatic? What's the most interesting or funny or characterful thing for them to say right now? Like if I could choose the perfect edit of this scene, what, what would I do? And so I started writing just the first scene in the game. She um, goes back to the university and she talks to her supervisor there, who's kind of her adoptive mother and they don't really get along. Um, and they have something which is kind of an argument and kind of not an argument and uh, and just writing that the most fun version of that scene was just a really enjoyable experience I love writing dialogue anyway and kind of spinning it out into a novel was just I, I really enjoyed it and then um, similarly I'll kind of arguing with the robot her first argument with the robot is <laughs> another great like lovely bit of dialogue that was really fun to spin out and I started to find that the, the game and my knowledge of the script of the game meant that I had this huge bank of material that I could draw on and ideas and quips and snark and details about the world and all that kind of stuff. So whenever I wanted something, I could think, oh yeah, this would be a nice moment for a, a kind of a moment of connection. I had one or a moment of disconnection. I had one, a moment of argument, I had one. And so it fell into place very, very quickly actually um, to begin with. But uh, then as I started to take the project a bit more seriously, uh, I started to run into the problem of plot. And this is really interesting. I found this really interesting that when you're making a game, obviously games have plots, right? They have stories, they have plots. Um, in a game plot though, you can absolutely drop the ball whenever you like. You can completely remove the player's motivation or the protagonist's motivation rather to do anything. You can say, okay, you've solved everything, but you know, there's still a big dragon over there you need to beat because the player will just go off and do stuff anyway because they're playing a game. If they don't have an immediate bit of story, they'll just go and find another side quest. They'll go and do some leveling up. They'll go and do something um, in the game that's to do. Whereas in a book, probably in a film as well, but in a book, if there's ever a point where the protagonist has solved all their available problems, they stop moving. They just sit there and they go, uh, okay, right, well, I won't do anything now. And, and the plot just dies. And I wasn't really expecting that because in games that just doesn't happen. It's not a problem. You just put another thing and the player goes and finds it because the player pushes them forward. And you can't really write. The protagonist just sort of 
randomly goes for a walk and then stumbles on an NPC who gives him a piece of information because that's just ludicrous. That's like your your book died and you started another one. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work at all. So I suddenly had to start making the plotting, which, you know, the plotting in Heaven's Vault, I think is good. The, the game is good. But I had to make it really, really, really good and really tight so that everything was motivated and everything has something pushing it forward and there's a reason for her to go to every single dig site all the time and hopefully multiple reasons that and mysteries that she's uncovering and resolving at the same time in different theories and it started to turn it into much more of a much more of a detective story actually which was really nice because it sort of brought it full circle for me because one of the inspirations when I was writing the game was Raymond Chandler um, and his Philip Marlowe um, noir detective books uh, because one thing that Raymond Chandler does in his Philip Marlowe books is he wants to tell you about L.A. in the 1940s, and he does it by giving his private detective a case, and then to solve that case, he has to go to a bunch of interesting locations, and each one, like, he'll go to the Chinese laundry, and then he'll go to the gambling ship, and then he'll go to the drug den, and then he'll go to the dodgy doctor in Beverly Hills, and in each location, he gets a clue that tells him to go to the next one, and what we're really doing is being driven on a tour bus around this setting, which is what Chandler wants to talk about, but there's always a, a plot driving the character forward, and I kind of realized early on with Heaven's Vault that this archaeology game needed needed this kind of plot behind it. So, you know, there's this guy, he goes missing, you go looking for him, and that's what kicks you into action. Um, and so for the book, I was kind of much more coming back to that. So it, it's really plotted actually like a Raymond Chandler novel. There's There are, you know, mysteries, and there are solutions to mysteries that unlock other mysteries. And then the plot kind of crescendos, and it gets a bit tense, and there's an antagonist, and it comes together at the end in unexpected ways, and that kind of stuff. And plotting that out was so much fun, ultimately, because it's a kind of level of plotting, of tightness of plotting, you can't really do in games for the same reason that you, you don't need to do it because the player needs to drive things, but you also can't do it because the player needs to drive things. Um, but in a book, the author is dragging the protagonist along by the nose and that's a good thing and it's breakneck and it's exciting and plotting that was really, 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 really fun. Um, so I think when people read the books, it's a, it's a trilogy in two parts. And the first book, um, cleaves quite closely to the way that the game unfolds and people might read that and go oh yeah I see that this is nice it's familiar I get it it's following through there's definitely new stuff in there and there's some new material and well, it's quite a lot of new material um, and there's lots of extra backstory and some mysteries and some setups and things like that and then the second book it's still locations you'll recognize but the plot kind of takes over and and manipulates them in different ways and I think that will be really exciting to read for people who played the game because you'll sort of know what to expect and at the same time you to have and i can't wait for people to get to the end um i was saying i think before we started recording i was saying i don't really know which one is the definitive heaven's vault at this point i have no idea um yeah i guess i mean I, in a sense the question doesn't mean anything um and like by both <laughs> yeah um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it was, I mean, ultimately, it was a lot of fun to write, and I think it'll be a lot of fun to read. So it doesn't really matter what the real version is. But um, yeah, yeah. And then presumably, if people haven't played the game, which they should, but if they haven't and they want to read the book, uh, they'll mm -hmm. still be able to enjoy it, I, I imagine, then. 
Yeah, that was really important to me, actually, um, bizarrely, because I suppose most people who'd read the book will have played the game. But I really wanted to write something that you could just that could just be in a bookshop in the science fiction section and just be readable, you know, to anyone that, that people could read it and get to the end and go, wait, that was a computer game. What? That's surprising. Um, that was really important to me. Um, again, it's a bit like the Marvel thing, isn't it? Like there's plenty of people who watch the Marvel movies and can't imagine reading a comic book ever and, and would never would, I'm, myself included, really. Mm. Um, I, so, I yeah, it, read it everything should... Marvel, so. <laughs> OK, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, they're, very, they're very different worlds, but they're kind mm. of tied together, don't they? They're, um, yeah, they're exactly like you said. They're very different, but they're also the same. So, yeah, the, 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 the feeling is the same. The style is the same. The characters are the same, but they're adapted for the medium. So, yeah. Yeah. I, it, it reminds me of um, way back when we started Inkle and we were making the sorcery games based on uh, the Steve Jackson game books that we adapted them really heavily, uh, especially as the series went on and we changed lots and we threw a lot away and we wrote enormous amounts of new material, but it was okay with us and it was okay with the fans because we kept the feel of the world and the feel of the books. And whenever I was stuck on what we should be writing, I wouldn't go back to the book for material, though I often did go back to the book for material. But when I was stuck, I would go back to a really clear memory I had of being 10 years old and reading the books and not what the book was, but how it felt to me when I was playing it as a 10 year old, because that was what mattered. It was the world that I had in my head as a child was what I was trying to replicate, not the actual text in the actual book. Um, and I think that really came through in the sorcery adaptation that it, people played it and were like, well, this isn't the sorcery book I read when I was a kid, but it feels exactly like the sorcery book I read when I was a kid. And that's kind of magic. And so I, I think my hope for the Heaven's Vault book for people who have played the game is this is not the Heaven's Vault that you played, but it feels exactly like the Heaven's Vault that you played um, in a good way, I think if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's kind of, I think, what Ron Gilbert said something similar at Timbleweed Park, that he made an old school game, not exactly like they made it back then, but how people remember the games to be as well. Right. That Because we, well, the two of us were talking about this as well, that games released in the 80s and 90s, that with nostalgia, we think they're all amazing. I'm sure a lot of them are, but if we go back and play them now, we'd, we'd like, oh, there are some flaws. They're not that they're bad games, but that there are flaws that we didn't see when we played them. And so you want to recreate the really good feelings. Um, mm. I'm guessing it's, well, that's my take uh, anyway. I don't know if that's yeah, what you no, meant, I think but... I think No, I think it's exactly that. I think it's exactly that. It's, um, it's, trying to, it's trying to cut through the marble to the heart of the statue, isn't it? And get to the, mm. get the bits that matter and throw away the bits that, that didn't need to be there or that we were okay at the time, but don't make sense now. Right, yeah. Now, be, be, before we finish now, I've, I wanted to ask this question as well. Now, before, you know, we have a game of Heaven's Vault. We have two books of Heaven's Vault now. And Thomas and I were discussing as well that Heaven's Vault, uh, more than a lot of other games, we feel would make a great movie or a great TV series. So if... Uh, it would Phillip make such a... It would make such a good TV series. I like, mm, can I, it absolutely. would make such a good TV series. I'm glad, series. I'm glad to it hear that you agree. <laughs> yeah, no, can I, I absolutely can I adapt agree. It? <laughs> uh, I mean, contractually, that's complicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, and Netflix seems to be making TV series out of absolutely everything at the moment. Um, yeah. So who knows? Maybe one day that, that will happen. Um, 
Would, would you I would be up that. for it? So I would, would really love that. Okay, so you want to yeah. raise a question then. If a no, filmmaker lo- came up to you and said, look, John, I'm an experienced filmmaker. I love your game. I love your books of Heaven's Vault. We are interested in adapting to a TV series or a movie. Um, mm. how, how, do, how would you say you'd react, which I think you've already answered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'd be hugely enthusiastic. I mean, I think when the Dune guy is finished making his Dune yes. movies, he, he should do it, really. I think he'd be the right person for the job. Um, Denis Villeneuve, it, uh, call us or call John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We know you're exactly. listening, Denny. We know you're listening. <laughs> Come on, you guys have the reach, don't you? Otherwise, uh, oh, Ryan yeah, Johnson. sure, yeah. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. That, that, if you if you if you take Ryan Johnson, you're definitely gonna go more action orientated. But if you go for, with Denis Villeneuve, then you go more cerebral, more yeah, serial. I well, think if you if you look at well, it could both work. It depends. I mean, on I mean, the only reason Denis couldn't make it is that Heaven's Vault hasn't got any enormous spaceships hovering a couple of inches off the ground, <laughs> which is a thing that he insists on putting in every single one of his science fiction films. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I'm open to that. If he wanted to add that, that would be okay. I would absolutely love to to play around in this world some more. And like, you know, I could, if the books do really well, well so I could do write I. <laughs> another yeah. book or, uh, you know, but who knows, who knows? What's, I, what, I, I, what? Sorry? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I never really know what I'm going to be working on <laughs> six months ahead of working on it. So um, yeah. what are the chances of more games in this world? Not necessarily a sequel, but more, yeah, revisiting the fair, world. Yeah, I think they're fairly low, actually. I think, oh. um, <laughs> I know, I know. But I think that's because, to a large extent, I think the game does everything that we wanted it to do. Like, there are probably things we could we could make better if we if we were to build the whole game again from scratch i think we could improve it but in terms of adding more to it it's hard for me to imagine things which would like you could always have more sites to explore and more content but but i I wouldn't be happy with that i'd want to tell whole other stories and this is a four thousand year story and it's got a beginning a middle and an end so that's quite a lot to add to uh, this um, is the this is a story of, of 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 this main protagonist but i can also imagine you going into the history of this world yeah i know but it would always feel to me like it was a like an like a like a side story to to Aaliyah's story I, or that every time i thought about it that's how it ends up to me like okay. i think one could do it if one had the right format, but I don't know what that format would be. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I, I genuinely don't know. Um, I would love to create another world of this kind of depth and complexity yes, and that, style. That would be Again, up for. I'm not, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not done. And like, because I think um, there aren't enough science fiction worlds. And I think I'm specifically talking about science fiction here, but there are enough science fiction worlds that are built with this like breadth of humanity and logic that we tried to imbue it with everything makes sense everything comes from somewhere and has a reason to be there none of it's spurious but all of it is human and it's tied to what people actually do and how they actually live and i'm really passionate about those things and i would love to have another crack at doing that but bloody hell it was really hard the first time so and, <laughs> and, and history uh, because this is a science fiction yeah. game but it feels like you know real place you know feels like there's history to four thousand years of it um, yeah yeah exactly and it's not just made up it, it, it one history turns into the next by by a meaningful process and um yeah 
Oh, I love the Nebula. I really do. Yeah. No, well, hopefully you will revisit. Now, you you also released Overboard, which we haven't unfortunately had much time to talk about. And I know we have to let you go soon. But the interesting thing about Overboard, one of them is that you just released that without really any marketing, I believe, that it just dropped. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did. We've, ne- we've never done that before. Um, and it was terrifying. But it kind of, originally, it was going to be... Originally, we were just mucking about and we made overboard. We were bored. Um, it was the <laughs> lockdown. Everyone was feeling miserable. So we thought, let's see if we can make a game in a week. Um, and then after the week went by, we thought, OK, let's see if we can make a game in a month then. And by the end of the month, we had a game, but it was very shonky and it didn't really have any art in it. And then we were like, oh, this game's quite good, actually. All right, let's put some proper art in. So the artists <laughs> set off and did proper art. And I thought, well, I could add a bit more to the story. And we got some testers and they found problems. So we fixed those problems and that made us embellish it a bit more. And we did a Switch port because we liked the Switch. And we added a few convenience features to make replaying easier. And that led us to a few more bits of UI design. And before we knew it, we'd spent three months on this game that was supposed to take a week. But it still felt like a game that we'd made in a week. So although we were pretty confident that it was a good game, that was a fun game that was going to do well, it still felt weird to say, hey, do you want to wishlist our game? It's (laughs) something we made in a week, but except it isn't. Um, But also because like one of the things about Overboard is it's got a great concept. It's a a whodunit where you done it. I need to get away with murder. Literally. <laughs> yeah, and you have to get away. And originally, we weren't going to tell anyone that. We were going to just say, you know, it's a new Inkle mystery game. You can play it right now and have people go, okay, cool, cool, cool. What the? F-? <laughs> you know? And I love the idea of that moment. And we didn't do that because everyone else on the team persuaded me that it would be a stupid thing to do to not tell people the hook of your game. Um, and they were absolutely right. But we kind of loved the idea of, of having that what the hell moment in the trailer at the moment that you could play the game so it's not that you watch the trailer and you you hear the twist because the twist is in the trailer and then you put it on your wish list you hear the twist the twist is in the trailer you think wow and you buy it immediately we just love the the enthusiasm mm. behind that um, no, because, absolutely you know all fact- of steam is built for ga- garnering wish lists and getting wish lists and fighting for wish lists and it's tiresome it's just nice to just make something and give it to people and say you see this this is fun play this now um and it wasn't a complete disaster, which was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. It felt kind of like the, um, sort of the marketing to what's the second or third Cloverfield movie, which just dropped that uh, nobody really <laughs> expected it. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that, though, because that movie was quite bad and they didn't want yeah, to Yeah, that's true. That is true. That was know. terrible. <laughs> Overboard isn't. Overboard yeah. is great. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen it. I've only ever read reviews of it. But, I did, um, yeah, well, that's a whole other uh, story. But Laura, actually, on the podcast, she also is part of Adventure Gamers. I think she had it to review. And she just told us, she said, oh, my God, guys, I've just played this game, which is amazing, yeah. but I can't say anything about it, and it's killing me. She's wanted, she wanted to talk about it so, <laughs> so much. Badly. And when yeah, the game yeah. was finally released, you know, I think she breathed a sigh of relief. Finally, I can talk about this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, with that, are, are you able to talk about or say anything at all about what you may be working on now or, or what can uh, you... Yeah, I can. Yeah? Oh. No, I can, actually. We're right. So... Um, since we shipped overboard in june uh, most of the team has been i've been writing a novel obviously um but most of the team has been working on our highland game which we yes. haven't announced the full title for but we will do fairly soon i think um 
but it's something quite different again. Uh, it's got a beautiful art style. It's got hand-drawn 2D animations. It's got a little bit of, little bit of sort of platforming-y stuff in there. It's, it's Inkle doing something else again completely, um, but still with that narrative ink core to it. And yeah, I don't think I want to say any more than that <laughs> at this stage, but I can't wait to announce it. And we, we just this week signed, um, signed a contract for, for the last kind of piece of the puzzle for that mm. game. Um, so we've got everything we needed in place and it's really, it's thrilling. It's really thrilling. And I, I yeah, I, I can't really can't wait to announce it because um, it's really something truly, truly special and I think quite unlike anything I've seen in a game before actually the whole package so we just have to pull it off now but um yeah so that's gonna that'll be that'll be us for the next six months at least um and if not a lot longer but we're working in quite an ad hoc way at the moment because we've got far too many children um as a company <laughs> as a collective company there are just so many children in it um uh, attached to it that none of us have very much time so we're kind of making up our schedules as we go slightly uh, so we'll see but then again you know if you'd asked me this time last year are you working on a detective game set on a boat i would have said no <laughs> and then like a couple of weeks later i was working on a detective game set on a boat so anything literally anything can happen um you so, take your inspiration from anywhere yeah well you've got to grab your enthusiasm where you find it that's definitely true well if you ever get inspired to uh, you know write a game about a couple of podcast uh, <laughs> podcasters then we're happy One to lend them. some uh, expertise or that. I mean, that, sure, I'll bear that in mind. Yeah, I'm sure that'll <laughs> that'll be really interesting, really fascinating. <laughs> um, well, I think that I mean I could have a lot more questions, but we do have to let you go. Um, I think, John, do you have any questions, Thomas? Uh, we could have you one final question, if you have any. I mean, again, I'm sure you have plenty. But <laughs> no, I just I just want to say thank you for Heaven's Vault, and I'm looking forward mm. to uh, receiving the books. I've ordered them. Excellent. And uh, I'm going to read yes. them as soon as, yeah, I'm going to read them as soon as I finish the book that I'm uh, reading now. So, uh, yeah, and look, always looking forward to uh, new uh, Inkle uh, releases. It's uh, yeah. a, 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 an event in our uh, mm. in our niche. Well, yeah, thank we'll you. Be... That's really, it's really, really nice to hear. And, um, you know, as a small studio, it's it's very easy to kind of see the announcement of the game awards or whatever and think like what are, what are what are we doing here what's the point of all this <laughs> and so kind of yeah it, it's it's so good to hear that the games reach people and connect with people and it it just never gets old to know that you know it wasn't a complete waste of time so yeah. thank you very much um and we're encouraging people when they do receive their books to share a photograph of them like uh, on twitter or wherever you want to share things um, will do because <laughs> i just re I, I, I just i love i can't get enough of seeing these physical objects in the world like it's just it's it's still quite new to us having done everything digitally for so long i can well, imagine yeah we we should we shall do that and we shall uh, i imagine we'll be reviewing the books on a podcast as well so hopefully we'll like them now <laughs> 
Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> no pressure or anything. But... <laughs> well, it's um, too late. There's nothing I can do about it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, uh, John. Hopefully, we can meet in person one of these times. I haven't even mentioned, but I'll probably try and include a link as well that uh, the talk you gave at Adventure X in 2019 with Sally Bowmount about narrative as well. I mean, that could be a whole other podcast um, about uh, narrative that you did, the examples you gave, Blade Runner, and everything, which was absolutely absolutely amazing but I, I will put a link to the video and people can watch that uh themselves uh, because it was absolutely uh really really amazing um so hopefully we can Ooh. meet again sometime hopefully in person we shall see how that yeah hopefully transpires. there will be adventure x again <laughs> yes yeah, hopefully it will happen uh we, sh we shall see uh but thank you so much john it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh hopefully no, thanks. We can... it's been really fun Thank you. Hopefully really we can nice talk. talk uh, about yes. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and we shall talk again, hopefully soon. Yeah, okay. Good luck on the, on the development of the new game. Yes. Thank you. Yes. It'll be nice to focus on a game again. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm done with pros for now. Um, <laughs> cool. Thank you very much, guys. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with the legend and uh, really, really fabulous and really nice guy that is John Ingold of Inkle Studios. A huge thank you to John for speaking to us. We could have spoken a lot, lot longer to him. Uh, we could have asked him many more questions, but we did have to let him go at some point. Um, but hopefully we can chat to him sometime in the future um, again. Now, as I mentioned, in the meantime, uh, his books of Heaven's Vault are available at the Inkle Studio shop. So the link will be in the show notes. Um, if you are listening, you can find the books at inklestudios.myshopify.com. But I said just click on the link in the show notes and you can find the books there. We will be talking about those books in more detail in the podcast, Thomas and I, as we'll be reviewing those books. So hope you enjoyed that interview and we'll be back next time. Hopefully Laura will be able to join us when we review the latest adventure games we have been playing. Um, so that's it for uh, this episode. Hope everyone is well. Stay safe, everyone, and take care. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>